Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities and some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Welcome to today's episode of Give First. I'm your co-host, David Cohen, and I'm really excited to have Heidi Roizen with us today. Heidi is a partner at Threshold VC. She is a, obviously, venture capitalist, corporate director, and a recovering entrepreneur, as you describe it. Right, Heidi? Absolutely. I'm so psyched to be here and be talking to you. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time. Sure. You also are very involved, I think, at Stanford. Can you talk a little bit about what you do there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I am um, the co-lead of an entrepreneurial leadership fellows program that I teach with Tina Seelig, a fantastic Stanford professor out of the management science and engineering department. And we can select 12 applicants every year out of a pool of, I think last year we had 65, and they're all master's students in what I call the hard sciences at Stanford. So Double ECS, mechanical engineering, you know, you name it. And we put them through a six month rather intensive program on entrepreneurship. It's got to be a lot of fun. I think Threshold, I'm sure, gets a lot of benefit from that. Would love to hear a little bit about Threshold as well and some of the companies. I know Memphis Meets and Planet and others, but would love to hear a bit about what you're doing there as well. Sure. Yeah. I've been with, uh, you know, Threshold is, uh, is a, the new, new spin out out of the, DFJ Venture Team. It actually is the whole team. And uh, I've been with that group now for about seven and a half years and have been focusing on more of what I would call the existing portfolio as opposed to the prospecting side. I do participate in the investment committee and investment decisions, but primarily my work involves helping our portfolio companies achieve their maximum potential. And, and with that in mind, I do serve on the board of a number of portfolio companies, and the ones that are probably the most known to the world are Zooks, the fully autonomous vehicle company, Planet, the company that images the whole earth every day, and Memphis Meats, the company that is trying to help us all satisfy our desires to eat steak and chicken without killing animals. So they're super, super fun companies, super exciting companies. I always, I always say to everyone, I have the best job in the world because I get to work with these amazing entrepreneurs doing these really world-changing things. They are amazing. You know, the, it's funny how frequently you read about the sort of new meat companies, alternative meat companies in the media. It seems like a story that they all want to follow. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's solving one of the world's largest problems, how to feed the world. And as countries move up in their economic abilities, meat consumption tends to go up as well. And there are a lot of issues with meat consumption, huge drain on the resources of the world, the ethical issues, obviously, and there just have to be better ways to do it. And yet, you know, humans have been eating meat for a long time, and they're probably not going to stop. 
uh, anytime soon. So I, I think it's I think it's a super exciting area. And of course, Memphis's approach, which is to actually grow real meat from animal cells, as opposed to try to create a meat like substitute from other types of protein, I think is is the I think it's the most exciting and interesting way to go. And obviously, that's why we back the company. Isn't it awesome when you can invest in fun things that also uh, make the world a better place? So it's cool to do that. A hundred percent, yes. Yeah. So I talked to uh, a good friend of, of both yours and mine, Wendy Lee, as well as Love Wendy. Brad Feld, my co-host and others. I got. I want to dig in. I want to jump in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you two of my most favorite people in the world. Mine so. too. Mine too. Except yeah. for Brad. I don't know how he got on that list. <laughs> So uh, you were a mentor capitalist before mentor was a trendy word. How'd yes. you come up with, with that role? What does that mean to you? So I did steal that. I, I joke with uh, a great guy named Stan Marisman, and I told him that whenever I used it, I would put a little, put a little uh, you know, a reference to him as the creator of that. So I just like all, all good entrepreneurs, I saw a great idea and I co-opted it for myself. But uh, it's, you know, the idea was basically when after I, you know, I was an entrepreneur myself for 14 years. And then after a one-year stint uh, running developer relations at Apple, I ended up um, taking some time off before I went into the venture capital world. And during that time, what I realized is, you know, what I really love doing is helping companies grow. And so I kind of hung out my shingle as a mentor capitalist. And the idea was I would basically give companies my time and a little bit of capital. Very often what I was doing is taking equity in the company as a director and, and, you know, exercising my stock and, and putting that money in and then just, you know, counting on the companies to succeed. And sometimes they didn't. And that's how I pursued my career for a while until Brad and, and the other partners uh, where he was at the time recruited me into venture capital. So do you remember any specific stories at that moment where you're transitioning maybe from entrepreneur into mentor capitalist and then venture capitalist that sort of triggered the interest in it or sort of led to that next step for you? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, look, I loved being a CEO. I mean, it's the hardest job that anyone will ever have is being a founder and CEO of a company. You know, the highs are unbelievably high and the lows are unbelievably low. And you, you know, the people who say, oh gosh, you know, you must have had so much freedom and independence being a CEO have no idea what it's really like to be a CEO, right? It's, it's lonely at the top and you have a tremendous amount of pressure and you're never going to make everyone happy and, and people are messy and all of those things, right? So it's an exhilarating thing, but also difficult. So for me, after you know spending a year in the corporate world and deciding that wasn't for me either, what I love is the entrepreneurial journey, but I don't necessarily want to be in that driver's seat myself, quite frankly, partially because I know how hard it is. So I felt that it was a really good opportunity for me to, to turn my attention to helping others. And one of the things I love about being a mentor capitalist, I actually tried doing some consulting. You know, People wanted to hire me and pay me to do things. But first of all, the startups mostly they don't have the capital. And second of all, I liked betting on the outcome of the company. I like being aligned with the entrepreneur. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think I really enjoy being a very early stage venture capitalist, because we, we always say to the entrepreneur, we're the closest one to you on the, on the cap table, right? We're only going to succeed if you succeed. And so to me, that was, that was really fun. It was, it was challenging. I was fortunate that, that I had amassed a capital base so I could take these bets and do it without any income. And, you know, on top of that, be, be putting my own capital to work in these companies. But the idea being that I only succeed if the company succeeds. And I really enjoy that alignment. I also really enjoy the idea that I 
get to be a part of a team for a long period of time. During my mentor capital days, most of the companies that I worked with, I was working with them for, for call it four or five years. And certainly at Threshold, the companies that I'm on the board of, most of those will probably be whatever they will, five to seven year missions. I, you know, I often joke that entrepreneurs should be really careful about picking their venture partners because the average VC relationship lasts longer than the average American marriage. And it's probably easier to get rid of your spouse than it is to get rid of your venture capitalists. So <laughs> both, both parties should go into this with their eyes wide open. It's definitely true. Having been in two marriages, I totally understand the concept. <laughs> you know, I think that idea of, you know, I only win if you win is, is something that we all talk about here at Techstars as well. And in a way, it's it's very give first, right? You're, you're not an advisor who's sort of taking stock or, or, or compensation in cash, right? You're really investing and, and ultimately, you know, you only succeed if they succeed. And it's surprising to me how many people get into venture capital and have some kind of different expectation that they can do well if you know, the entrepreneurs they're helping maybe don't do well. That's certainly not a long view, right? You can maybe self-optimize in the short term, but in the long term, you have to live and die by the reputation as being someone who's willing to be really helpful to the entrepreneur. I mean, something, again, I tell entrepreneurs, it's really easy when a VC gives you a reference and it's the, the you know, rock star unicorn that went public CEO. I'd ask entrepreneurs, I'd ask VCs, you know, give me the references of the companies where it didn't work out. And what happened when times went bad? Because that's really what, you know, as, as they say, character is not built, it's revealed. <laughs> to me, those bad times are when you really have to dig in and, and do the right thing and be super helpful. And that's where I think one's mettle is really tested. And that's where I believe, you know, while we'd like to believe that all investments we make are going to be magnificently successful and up and to the right, as Bill Campbell used to always say, that's really rarely the reality. The reality is more of a, a wandering path of ups and downs and crises and wins and losses. And, and it's how one behaves in the downtime that really defines, I think, ultimately, not only the relationship, but the chance for ultimate success. I agree. And when, you know, Wendy, when I was talking to her, she called you the epitome of give first. So you should know she said that. Uh, she <laughs> oh, she so was sweet. one of our first guests, if not the first guest on this show. Wow. She wow. also talked about your deep sense of self and how that allows you to deliver and receive clear feedback that can be easily heard and acted upon. And a lot of people can Ooh. give advice, but not everyone is heard. How, how do you get through to people when you're trying to give them feedback? Well, first of all, I'm ex extremely honored Wendy would say any of that because she, uh, she is, is one of my mentors and idols and, as I call it, fellow traveler on this, on this road. I, I'm in a really fortunate position because I don't, for whatever reason, I joke sometimes, maybe it's just because I'm old. I don't have, I don't have an agenda to prove out for myself any longer. I'm about making companies successful. And so this isn't about me or my ego. This is about what can we do to help these amazing entrepreneurs and amazing companies be successful. And so I don't have a separate dog in the race, right? I, my dog is their dog. It's, it's basically trying to do what they want to do. And in that vein, I've also had the benefit, I, I think I've served on like 40 private boards in my lifetime. I've also served on seven public boards. And so I've had a lot of experience in the not on the frontline position, in the coaching position, in the, as I sometimes jokingly call it, the grandparenting position. And so I understand that I'm not the operative here. The CEO and the leadership team, those are the people in the driver's seat. And I 
I have a seat on the bus. I'm not driving the bus. And so when I go to give advice, first of all, I try to contextualize it to other situations I've seen. You know, sometimes people joke negatively that venture capitalists are pattern recognizers. While really we invest in companies that are breaking patterns. So I always think that's kind of funny. The flip side is, and I, I say this to my entrepreneurs a lot, there are things you are doing that no one's ever done before and those should be hard. There are things you're doing that other people have done before and those should be easy. <laughs> you know, it should not be hard to design compensation schemes. It should be not difficult to put your uh, financial operations in order. You know, those are all places where we can use best practices and stand on the shoulders of others to create the best situation we can. And that's where I think some of this comes in handy. So number one, just the understanding best practices across a whole slate of companies. And the other thing is just sometimes you just know, you know, I, I jokingly say it's the line, you know, hey, I've seen this movie before and I know how it ends. And so there are just some classic things that people have a really hard time recognizing when someone, you know, for example, when there's a person on your leadership team who isn't working out and you have to make a change. You know, people always wait too long to make those changes. And it's because it's hard and it feels bad and it feels like a failure. And, you know, my argument is a lot of times when you have the wrong, when you have the wrong person in the, in the role, it's not only not good for you, it's not good for that person. And so just being able to walk through things where I have seen the movie before, I kind of know how human nature works. And, and in fact, by the way, I have found in the last five years or so, my business reading so many of the books I've been reading are human psychology and human nature and, and not, you know, uh, growth hacking or this or that, because at the end of the day, I think that the people issues and, and helping people maximize their ability to perform and succeed and, and be true to themselves in that process is probably the greatest contribution I can make from the sidelines. And so that's where I tend to focus. The idea that you know companies that you're investing in are trying to do something new, but the dichotomy of a lot of what they're doing is not new, and you know that that idea of of where the experience comes in and can be handy, I think is a really good framing and takeaway that I think I got from this is that you know it 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 always is going to be a lot of things that have been done before, and if you're going to try to do that, you should do whatever's worked before. And so the, the, the wisdom of your experience, having seen that over and over again, is really valuable to entrepreneurs. People often ask me, what's the value of mentorship? With that framing, it's pretty clear that it's, it's on the pieces that have been done before. And I do think that that is a benefit of having professional investors involved in your company. You know, people like, you know, people like you, like tech stars and people like us, that we have a portfolio of, of current activity where we're seeing lots of examples of what is good practice, what is bad practice, what is market. Those are very helpful to entrepreneurs who are so in, in their own space and in the weeds of what they're doing that it's hard for them. Not only is it hard to pop up your head and get that broader view, but a lot of that is not, is not available to you, right? A lot of that is confidential and behind closed doors. Super helpful. Heidi, I heard you once had a Casbah. What was that? And, and why'd, you have one, why'd you have one of those? What was that all about? <laughs> It was just a life phase I was going through. Um, <laughs> well, I've always been one to to combine my work and my private life. I'm definitely a person who I'm an open book. I'm the same everywhere. I don't think I don't think anyone would ever say, "Well, gee, that's not what Heidi's like in situation X." I'm I'm kind of the I again have the great benefit of being at a place of of work that I love and place in my life where just 
work and home look kind of the same. So for me, it is that work-life integration. And part of that was for, uh, for quite a while, I love to give parties and I still love to entertain and host and cook dinner for people and do that sort of stuff. And so in the dot-com boom, I'll chalk it up to the dot-com boom. We uh, built this crazy thing in our house called the Casbah and it was a, an underground nightclub. <laughs> in Atherton. It still exists. I don't own it anymore. That uh, that was my pre-divorce house. But uh, but it was a place where we would host fundraisers and company offsites and all sorts of things like that. And it was it was quite a uh I owned it for about let's see. Uh about 10 years and it was uh, it was epic. And um I no longer have a venue of that magnitude under my control, but I still do an awful lot of dinners and I have my students over to my house about once a month and we sit around the living room and sometimes we barbecue and sometimes we just get takeout and we talk and I'm still a, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a naturally, I'm a, I'm a people connector. What can I say? I, I just really enjoy people and I, I love doing it. And so it, it's, it was nice to have a venue to do that with. That sounds epic. Uh, it does sound epic. <laughs> I mean, once again, all about the people and sort of, you know, getting them together and figure out how to help yeah. them. I'm curious, um, early in your career, if you kind of think back a few years, do you, do you remember anything that, that maybe someone did for you that was sort of in your mind to give first thing that, that really changed the way that you approach things or changed your trajectory? You know, I think that there, I think a lot of times in life, it's not so much that there are these huge ahas where it's like some magnificent thing happened that somebody just opened the golden door for you and suddenly your life changed. I think it's actually the accumulation of the small favors and you never know how the, the tiny things, the tiny connections come back and, and benefit you and benefit the other people. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to take a step back and answer the question first at a very broad level, which is, I really believe, you know, not to get to go all metaphysical on you here, but I do believe as a person who integrates work and life that the true path to happiness is to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And I think one of the beauties of the entrepreneurial environment that we live in is very often you form your meaningful relationships through doing meaningful work together. And so it's a beautiful thing, right? And it, and I can truly say that some of my closest relations in my life are people that I've also been able to share work product with. Not 100%. I certainly have friends that are that are not workmates as well. But I would say the vast majority of the people I feel close to are people that I have had work relationships with. And so if you look at that, and, and, and then I'm going to overlay now the, I think Adam Grant and his book, Give and Take, is a, is a very good summary of sort of how I feel about it is, I go into life thinking, I'm about building relationships. I'm not about transactions. I'm not about win or lose, or this is what am I going to get out of this deal. I'm about, you are a fellow traveler in life that I have met. And if I can build a relationship with you, out of that will come will come good things. And if not, not, but I, but I'm always trying to optimize for the relationship over the transaction. And that I think sets kind of a high order bid in how I approach things, which is generally speaking, when I meet someone the first time, I'm not looking at what's in it for me. I'm looking at what can I do to generally be helpful to this person. And in getting to know this person and being helpful, I may down the line, find an opportunity. So that, you know, that is the natural course. And, and so if I think back to like, what were the big things in a way there weren't, you know, that it, it's, it's more the little things. It's more 
the work I did, I've been thinking about it recently a lot with Bill Campbell. And I was, I had the great privilege to serve on two boards with Bill and, and certainly considered him a mentor. And, and some of the small bits of advice I would get from Bill were really those, those little direct course corrections that put you on the right trajectory, right? I mean, early in a trajectory, it doesn't take much correction to set you on a very different path. And I think that those are the things that are important. But I would also say that I'm such a huge believer in in serendipity or what I call controlled randomness, right? The idea that you don't necessarily know when you go into something what you're going to get out of it. But if you position yourself in a in a place where you're going to find, you know, other people that are doing interesting things, you're probably likely that something good will come out of that. If you just put yourself in the mix and say, I'm here to be helpful, what can I do? And for me, a lot of that has, for, I'll give you a really concrete example of one. So 20 years ago, I got approached by a professor at Harvard and she wanted to do a case on, on business networking. And she had read an article about me and she wanted to have a female protagonist and asked me if I would sit for the case. And I said, sure, you know, why not? And so we worked on the case and the case came out in the year 2000. It's called, it's called the Heidi Roizen case. And it turned out that it became one of the most successful cases that she told me it's the most successful case of her career. And it's taught in all the top business schools and it's still being taught in all the top business schools. And as a result, I meet so many interesting people who reach out to me on LinkedIn or other places and say, I read the, you know, I studied you and at Harvard and it really resonated with me. And it's been interesting to me that that case has had such an impact on my life in tremendously interesting people that I've been able to meet and bring into my network because they resonated with something that was written about me. Not something I ever would have thought of when the case was originally written. I was doing it just to be kind of a good person and contribute to the, to the you know, body of work with more female protagonists that were being taught at business schools. So one little random thing turns into lots of downstream interesting things, but you never sort of plan that out. I mean, that's what that case sounds like. And I, I know you say often life is actually really, really random. You know, I actually had the same experience, right? With, with Techstars starting, if people know the origin story, it was a random day meeting literally with Brad Feld. I'd never met the guy in my life. 10, 15 yeah. minute meeting. And that turned into making, you know, Techstars uh, what it is today in many ways. So it, it is important to be open to that. It's an amazing thing. And, you know, if you ever ask people like, how did you meet your spouse, right? Or how did you meet your best friend or whatever? Most of these are not, you know, orchestrated, finely tuned things. They're random events that you sit next to the person on an airplane or you took a class with them or, you know, they ended up being your next door neighbor or something like that. There's a lot of randomness in what happens in our lives. I do think that you can control the randomness, right? I mean, you can, you know, it's one of the reasons why I highly encourage people to go to go to conferences and, and go to events around areas of interest for them and go join their trade associations. I mean, I, I worked with both the, what at the time was called the software publishers association and with the national venture capital association, because having chosen those professions, I wanted to just meet more interesting people and, and get to know them better. And so I think you can put yourself in positions where you may not know for example, people ask me sometimes, why do you volunteer your time to teach at Stanford? And I say, well, because here's the thing. Stanford does a really good job picking people, right? And out of those people, then I get to pick a subset of the people. And I don't know who I'm going to pick, but I can guarantee that in that pool of applicants, I'm going to find 12 super interesting people 
and I'm going to get to know them over a six month period. And do I know what they're going to do? Do I know who those people are? No, but I just know from past experience that that's a pretty good collection of, of, you know, that's a pretty good source material for me. And it has absolutely proven true where, you know, I think if you called any of my students, they would tell you that it was a really wonderful experience for them. But it's a wonderful experience for me too. I get to meet all these incredible people who are off doing interesting things and in their own ways changing the world as well. So it's it's definitely the proverbial win-win. So being open to randomness, but also when you have that random opportunity, sort of going into it with the right attitude and approach. I want to quote something I read in the first round review, an article that you're featured in. You said, if I can walk into a transaction with you and my goal is not just to make myself better off, but to make you better off as well, I'm going to end up with a much better outcome. You'd want to do business with me again. And that's really, really important. So again, back to that sort of human approach. Well, and I also think there's something else there that's really important. And it's something I've had to learn over time. I remember I took negotiation back in business school. And let's just say I took business school. I went to business school a really, really long time ago. And when I went into negotiation class, you know, this was the 80s. And it was like Wolf of Wall Street, screw the other guy. I thought negotiation was going to like make me sharper at, at, you know, winning. And the professor started the class by saying negotiation is, you know, define negotiation. And we came up with, you know, I win, you lose and all this kind of stuff. And he said, no, it's negotiation is the art of finding the maximal intersection of mutual need. And that's so important, right? I'm going to say it again. It's the art of finding the maximal intersection of mutual need, which that means you have needs and I have needs. And if we come into the room and we try to problem solve together, the beauty of what that unlocks is that you probably have skills, resources, creativity, ideas that I don't have to solve my problem. If I only approach you with what I think is the solution to my problem, I am eliminating all the opportunity that comes from all the things you might have and know that I don't know. So if you come in in with a a problem-solving mentality and say, let's try to solve our problem to our maximum mutual benefit, so many times when I come in with that attitude, I end up with something better than I myself would have come up with. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I think, once again, going back to the relationship thing, how good would it make you feel if you sat down and negotiate with someone and they said, what problem are you trying to solve and how can I help you solve it? Exactly. I like to ask the question, where are you coming from? I need to understand where you're coming from because you're not yeah. just trying to beat me, right? You, you have some concerns. I think that's great advice. We're both just trying to do better, right? Which is another thing. And I tell my students this all the time is just remember, we're all people first. We're our jobs second, we're our whatever, whatever stuff's going on in our lives. We're people first. And so trying to, to start with the human approach, I think, again, I just think it leads to, not only does it lead to better results, but even if you don't get a great result, because again, not all things are going to work out. It's not like you can magically find the best solutions to everything. Sometimes you have to walk away. And by the way, this is, this is one of the issues that you touch on when you end up saying, hey, give and take is... How do I limit it? How do I not become just the, the universal donor, right? I can't do everything for everyone and I can't just give of my time all the time. I have to find, I have to navigate this in a way that still allows me to ultimately end up where I want to be as well. And so there is a trade-off there. I, I think one of the mistakes people make is they don't, they don't edit, they don't review, they don't spend any time thinking about how am I spending my time and where am I getting benefit and where am I not getting benefit? Now, admittedly, some, some of that, 
you know, I do some things purely to give back. I don't walk, walk away and say, what was my personal benefit of that? I take a certain amount of my time and take meetings with, you know, entrepreneurs that I know are not going to be companies that would fit our model at threshold, but I just want to be a good person, particularly if they're women entrepreneurs, because I really like to support women entrepreneurs. So I'm not expecting a return from everything I do, but I do think that people have to be more thoughtful. The one thing we all, you know, if you have a way to get more of this, let me know, I'll back you. But, you know, we, we can't make more time. It's true. I haven't figured that out yet either been working yeah. on that one. You know, we're funding 500 companies a year. So pretty soon we're going to be working on that, I'm sure. Hopefully someone will do yes. that. <laughs> Heidi, I want to switch to rapid fire. I'm going to ask you a quick question to wrap things up. Uh, we have three or four of them and you give me a 30 second or less answer and we'll get through a bunch of them quickly. Does that sound good? That sounds fun. Great. Um, what's your favorite city in the world that you think everybody should visit? Oh, I love London. It's a lot of fun. What should they do there? Uh, theater. Definitely theater. Uh, there's a lot of good food there. It's fun to go look at some of the old you know, the, the, the things from the days of yore, like Windsor Castle and London Tower and that kind of stuff. I just, it's a, it's a fun city, but theater, number one, theater. How about a great book that you've read recently uh, that maybe you want to share with people? You know, I've, I've, I've read, uh, I'll give you one fiction and one nonfiction. The nonfiction, I, I recently read Atomic Habits, and I think it's just a really good book about if you want to change behavior, how to do it. And fiction, I just read a book called There, There that is about the Native American population in Oakland. And, and I just thought it was a really good fiction book. Awesome. Is there a nonprofit or charity that you'd urge people to check out and maybe get involved with? Um, you know, I think that the work that NC Wit is doing is really incredible. And so I'm a big proponent of them. I also am a big animal lover. And so generally speaking, whenever Whenever I do something and someone says, we'll donate to a charity on your behalf, it, it ends up going to the San Francisco SPCA or the Peninsula Humane Society. And I have two new family members I've gotten at SFSPCA in the last six months as well. Awesome. Uh, it may be getting old for listeners now, but if you're listening to the show, we know we'll, we'll do a, a donation to both of those uh, as a little thank you for, for being on the show, Heidi. Aww, and see what we're already huge donors of and San Francisco yep. SPC, we're all over it. So thanks for those suggestions for awesome. people as well. Last question here in rapid fire. Why does one of your kids call my co-host the toenail guy? Oh my God. Okay. Yeah, that was interesting. So Brad, when Brad and I were venture capital partners, he was in Colorado and I was in Atherton. So he used to come and stay at my house and the kids were quite small. And as I recall, one day, he had flip-flops on and his toenails were painted. And so my kids had never seen a grown man with, I think they were blue. And so one of my kids nicknamed him Toenail Boy. And that just kind of stuck. <laughs> that sounds exactly like Brad. <laughs> Heidi, thanks for being with us on the show. Uh, it's been super helpful. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First. <laughs>